Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. It is episode 230. We're recording this live on January 6th, 2022. And this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello and a happy new year to you. Hello and happy new year to you. We're starting this great new year off. We're starting this new year off great. Uh, we got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about how COVID has changed the study of human behavior, uh, the way we study human behavior, rather. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about taking a part-time contract on, type of, on top of your full-time job, writing interview questions for two different user groups, and we'll be discussing what's up with the anti-academic sentiment in UX. But first... Uh, there's a couple programming notes or community updates that I'd like to tackle at the top of the show here. Uh, for all of you following along with our Team Seas coverage, um, we have produced a series of seven, seven standalone Human Factors Minute episodes uh, with some fun cameos from folks around the lab and around the world, uh, if anyone listened to our St. Nick episode. Um, that is out now, and a uh, quick Team Seas update, we did it. Uh, we were able to raise... $30 million to remove 30 million pounds from the ocean on January 1st. It happened on that day. So wow. congratulations, everyone that donated. We did it. Yay. Good job. Uh, hey, it's a new year. And if you want to be uh, make your New Year's resolutions, new year, new you, all that stuff, we do have a Human Factors Digital Media Lab. If that is something that you're interested in, we are always looking at new ways to communicate Human Factors concepts uh, with a larger community. So if that's something that you want to do or get involved with, uh, we usually use it as an opportunity to help people build their portfolio and uh, get content out there just so that way other people can consume it and enjoy human factors like we do. Uh, if that interests you, please reach out to us on any of our social channels or, you know, we have a discord as well. Feel free to reach out on our website. We have a voicemail opportunity you can do there. We reach out to us anywhere. We're we're kind of everywhere, and and we'll look at all of those. But uh, we have gone on long enough. We know why you're all here. It's a new year. It's a news year. So let's go ahead and get into the news. That's right. The big question tonight is: Did COVID change the way that we study human behavior? Barry, what is our story tonight? So yes, as you say, how did co how COVID is changing the study of human behavior? Initially in the pandemic, many researchers were keen to see how to best predict support for measures that were being put in place to combat COVID-19. Psychologists at New York University decided to see if they could do things a bit differently and posted about their research on Twitter with an invite for people to get involved. They thought doing this, they might be able to get a couple, a couple, a few more people. And by a few, they meant 10, maybe 11 more. Uh, but in the end, they got data on 46,000 people. The breadth of data gathered, which covered over 67 countries, has given a much deeper into insight into the role and the impact of social and cultural impact, as well as correlations between things like national identity and support for public health policies. What this has highlighted was things like that in countries where people were most in favour of precautionary measures tended to be those that fostered a sense of public unity and cohesion. This the idea of we're all in it together. Initially, that seemed very counterintuitive, but the broad nature of the group allowed further interrogation because 
it was found that right-wing political ideology correlated with, resist with resistance to public health measures uh, among many survey part participants. But on the whole, a strong national identity predicted more support for such measures. They showed it might be possible to leverage national identity when promoting public health policies. The article goes on to highlight things like the value behind the messenger. If the person who's giving the message is liked, respected and trusted, then the message will be more effective. They also studied geo-tracking data from 15 million smartphones per day to look at correlations between US voting patterns and adherence to public health recommendations. People in uh, counties that voted re for Republican in the 2016 presiden presidential election, for example, practiced 14% less physical distancing between March and May 2020 than people did in areas that voted for Democrats. This article is full to the brim of amazing social science, from influencing and nudging through to culture and behavior that has been realized through the, through the use of the internet, but inspired and kickstarted because of the pandemic. So Nick, what are your thoughts on this new approach to social research? My initial thoughts on the article and in general are that this is filled to the brim, like you said, I think with, with lots of information and lots of different ways in which we're collecting data, lots of different insights onto sort of how the pandemic has changed our behavior as well. And that's something that I was actually thankful that they brought some of that in. I think this is a good recap of kind of what we all know or, or have come to know over the last couple years being in this extended global pandemic. And I think it brings up a lot of great points on how we sort of understand human behavior through these new methods, or not necessarily new methods, but the way in which we collect, analyze, and disseminate information has changed because of the way in which uh, our world works today. So uh, overall, I think this is a great springboard for a larger discussion. But what did you think? Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it there. I mean, we are in a position that we've never been in before uh, with the way that we are connected. You know, the internet has just provided so many new communication channels that just weren't available 15, 20 years ago. If we'd had this pandemic then, we'd have been in a very, very different situation in from everything from mental health all the way through to being able to talk to people. I mean, as we are now talking on like literally two, two countries, thousands of miles apart, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And for them to have almost taken that this is the catalyst and saying, right, well, we can use this to get more people involved. Um, it's almost the, well, duh, why haven't you done it already? Um, but a lot of these things, you know, innovation is, uh, you know, innovation is always that product of necessity rather than um, anything else. And so they've gone out, they've had a problem and they've said, right, well, let's try and get a couple more participants by this whole Twitter thing. Um, will it work? And then suddenly everybody gets on board. And a lot of the things that they found um, about how to influence people, um, how to look at really, really large data sets and bring out some really interesting information. Um, I think they're only um, scratching the surface. I, I haven't, it's been a long while since I've read an article that has made me want to talk about every single paragraph in it. And it's what, in, in our notes, it's about seven pages long. I've wanted to go through every single bit of it because there's just nuggets all the way through. Um, yeah, I think it's a brilliant article. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I echo that sentiment, Barry. This article is uh, packed, literally packed with interesting fact over interesting fact uh, over kind of recap and you're right every single every single paragraph here is uh full of 
interesting little tidbits. So why don't we get into some of those interesting tidbits? You want to go back and forth and just kind of talk about kind of things that resonated with us to begin with, and then maybe we go from there, uh, discuss further yeah. each of those points. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to cap that off, I think it's the most interesting article we've read this year. See what I did there. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I will agree with you. I think, I think this um, year, twenty twenty two, this is the yeah, yeah, the. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, just random British humor thrown in there. Um, the, I mean, the, the first bit that, that it really rings out is it talks a lot about influencing behavior. So to get to, to some nuts and bolts about influencing uh, behavior is all about how do we encourage other people to act in a way that we want them to act. Um, and this is, you know, we see we do see this in everyday uh, behavior. So when you're, um, you know, there's loads and loads of management books out there around um, how to have influencing or persuasive behavior. Um, but we see a lot more of that now with the internet about how do you actually influence people on the internet to do um, you know, the sort of things that you want to do. Um, one of the big players in, in this field is Cialdini. Um, and they came up with, or he came up with the um, six main areas of, um, of influence. And it's that basically six main actions that you can take. Uh, which includes reciprocity, um, commitment and consistency, uh, social proof, authority, liking, and scarcity. So reciprocity is, is you know, you reciprocating a view or you reciprocating something around um, what what the message is, so people feel like they've uh, they've engaged with it. A commitment or consistency is is you um, echoing the message forward um, and showing that you're, um, you're 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 committing to doing something um, around whatever that topic is. A social proof is basically kind of going along with the crowd and showing that um, um, what you've got there is is um, something that the entire um, crowd should be going along with. Authority, you're speaking with authority, and so you can pull out facts and figures and and get that message across with with a, with a sense of um, you've got a position around you that says that you know what you're talking about. Um, getting people to like you, the whole liking thing, and a scarcity is is where you where you're trying to show something that not many other people will have. And so you're given, so, so it's like when, when you say that like, there's only six left or something like that, then you're, you know, it's a scarce product or whatever it is that you're giving. And, and the new one is around, uh, that's sort of coming in, um, uh, more current research. Um, and it was highlighted to me by uh, professor Phil Morgan the other day was, is around curiosity, engaging people's curiosity, getting them to find out more about things. Um, particularly on, on social media now, it is quite a big, it's quite a big thing. So that whole influence in persuasive behavior um, is really um, highlighted within this article quite a lot. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. I think that's a good primer, <laughs> like human factors 101, or, or even, even psych 101. I feel mm -hmm. like that's the last time I heard Cialdini uh, talked about, but that's that's a great kind of primer for uh, talking about this article through a human factors or psychology lens. Because you're right, there are so many different factors at play here that influence the way in which we receive a message, and messaging is incredibly important. And it's something that I, as the leader of a human factors communication lab uh, focus on and something that is really important to me as a science communicator, because if we can't communicate these concepts to people who are listening to the show or consuming our content, then we're failing at our job. And uh, so I maybe I should brush up on Cialdini and <laughs> implement some of these persuasive art or persuasive uh, attributes into into the way we do things here. But 
Let's talk about um, a couple points here. I want to bring up the one uh, about, in terms of persuasion, who delivers that message, right? And and sort of their credibility. And one thing that this article brings up is that who is delivering that message is actually, it's really important. So when you compare somebody like Tom Hanks or Kim Kardashian to somebody like Anthony Fauci, there are certain attributes about those people that make them more or less credible to relay that information, right? If a message is coming from a celebrity or some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, social influencer, even though they might be an influencer, that message will not be taken at the same credibility as it would be if it was coming from somebody else who's a government official from the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infections Diseases, right? Like that, that is the difference. And so having um, sort of the pedigree and the credentials behind what you're saying is really important, right? I, I would not trust, um, let's, I mean, I would not trust a mom on Facebook to relay information that is, uh, I don't know, less than, uh, that's questionable. Let's let's say it that way. No. I would want to go to the source and say, well, where is this from? You know, and, and if it came from Fauci, then I would be more likely to believe that. Uh, and then I I almost hesitate to even say this, but there have been decisions made in the last couple of weeks where it's like, do do we now d- d- does the credibility of some of these institutions like the CDC come into question when they are giving recommendations without reason. I don't want to play into that. I think there are motives for giving recommendations, but again, it's like there's an incredible power that comes with authority to communicate a message. And it's something that's really important and can't be taken lightly. Uh, the people at these institutions, the people who are the face of these institutions need to, and I think they do understand that there is an incredible responsibility that comes with communicating uh, these things. And and it's, it, admittedly, that's a lesson learned by these people throughout the course of this. They have said things and gone back on it, and the messaging has been uh, contradictory at times, where like, Hey, we don't know anything. Quarantine for 14 days. Okay, now we know some more information. Quarantine for 10 days. But last week you said 14. Well, yeah, that's how science works. We figure out more information as we go on. And I think there's been sort of a uh, public mis- fundamental misunderstanding about how science works. But then that's also an opportunity for us educators to come in and say, no, this is exactly how it works. We kind of go with a conservative estimate to begin with, and then we refine based on new data. And I think a lot of people just want answers now. And anyway, I've been, I've been going off on a rant. I'm sure there's things that you want to jump in with. No, I, th- I think actually one. Of, this is for me one uh, almost a critical thing that that um, the the pandemic has shown us that what we've gone through with with COVID nineteen is that, as you quite rightly say. Um, before we got we, before the the term influencer um, came around, I used to call them vectors, so social vectors um, on social media about who 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 could you get a message to that if they get the message out, 
then will amplify what you're talking about. And and yes, the, the better the vector, the, the, the better value the vector, the better uh, reach you're going to have in a message. But what we've also found through the um, um, through through the pandemic is um, social media influencers who were um, didn't realize the the power of what they had, and they was they were putting out messaging. And we found this in the UK. There was um, the we we have our um, uh, the the people who are briefing out on on the news the uh, the the. The, the chief scientists and this, that, and the other, and they were briefing out. And then you had some pop stars who were saying, um, actually, no, the, um, the, the injections don't work. And, um, there was, there was a famous pop, um, pop star who sort of came out and, and said that he had um, bad consequences against a friend of her cousin's boyfriend's what, you know, really tenuous link as they do. And they didn't realize that actually they, well, or they, maybe they did, that actually their messaging would almost be seen with the same value as this eminent scientist. And and so, we, you know, we as as general public, uh, we don't necessarily weigh the people up in the, in this, in the way that we anticipate. And actually, the, and this article does go into a, um, into some of that about how um, how different people are perceived and maybe not in the ways that we uh, we we anticipated with that. Um, and you know, you, you sort of look at some of these these other bits. I mean, this whole bit about the geo tracking, I just thought was absolutely fascinating because now everybody's got a mobile phone, everybody's got that piece of yeah. um, hardware on them that is GPS GPS enabled that allows you, if it was you know, with all the the right ethics in place, to understand at a, almost a, a, a meter detail what their movements are on a on a day-to-day hour out hour minute to minute basis and be able to correlate that between their activities actions and opinions um just the the possibilities of understanding human behavior at this point uh a um really really exciting if you're on our side of the uh, the social research um thing the fact that we really love our social research we love we love our understanding more about how people like um are engaging and in, in this and the other but it's also terrifying the that if you know this type of thing could get in, into the wrong hands and is is abused um just how much you know what are the um what, what are them sort of possibilities um uh, which this this article doesn't go into at all but i think it's certainly something of a the of, of a future article um and one of the sort of bits i'd sort of put around around the is around the ethical issues around this type of working with such a large community because because it's online it is quite self-selecting um we know that the the social media is full of anonymous profiles well what's to stop that happening um and, and how do we deal with that and you know the, the idea of fake profiles and skew, uh, skewing data um in a large scale way which i'm pretty sure wouldn't have happened with this study because of the nature of what it was doing um but as soon as more people get um really clued into what's going on then i can see that being a being a factor in the future um but I've waffled on enough. What, what was your, um, what, did, what did you think was a, another big thing that came out of the uh, article for you? Yeah, before I get into my next big thing, I want to I wanna piggyback off of what you just said. I think in our 2021 recap, we talked about a story where there was this TikToker who actually shared scientific studies and they got inflated to, knocking over cans over here, <laughs> it got inflated to demographics that the, the scientists weren't looking for and they were spread widely because of this TikToker's influence. And I think that is a huge change in which we're seeing from the way in which we're collecting scientific information before and thinking about collecting 
data on people. You brought up the geo, uh, the geo data. There's also sort of this trend now, obviously, with everybody working from home and being confined to certain spaces, being unable to interact with people in a physical environment. There's sort of this increased reliance on these Internet-based surveys. And basically, if you look at sort of these daily activities that people are doing during the pandemic, like going to work, visiting family, dining at restaurants... These types of things have received more than 6,700 responses, the article cites, per day on average. That's a lot of data per day. And so when you look at this combined with political partisanship, which is appropriate, I guess, or inappropriate to talk about on January 6th, I don't know. If you look at that, right, and you look at the role that that plays on safe behaviors for working in or interacting in COVID environments, right? Republicans were nearly 28% more likely to be mobile than Democrats were. And this gap was widened over the study period from April to September of last year. And so it's interesting to see a partisan breakdown Mm. and the fact that this, this pandemic and behavior, human behavior has become polarized because of political affiliation or other reasons. And I I find that fascinating. I think longtime listeners of the show know my political leanings. And it's like, I'm frustrated by it. I think a lot of people are frustrated by people not following the rules. And a lot of that comes down to communication. If, let's say, certain uh, public figures who identify on that side, right? If if they were to come out and and sort of reinforce, or if they did this early on, if they were to reinforce these behaviors and say, we need to do this in order to stop the spread, I think this could have played out very differently than it did. And it's just, it's fascinating to see that there's such a huge divide, mm. not only in ideology but also in behavior itself i don't know that's that's another fascinating point to me uh do you have any other fascinating points that you want to discuss here yeah, no, i mean I, I guess just to follow up on what you're just saying i mean it's quite interesting that um here in the uk we do have more of a um a right-wing government and but one of the one of the i remember an early discussion that was had right at the sort of before the lockdown was called here in the uk about just how early or late to call it because they knew um because the work that they'd done around the the social science and social studies and the experts who knew at the time and i think we've learned a lot but certainly the the belief then was this was always going to be a time limited capability that um if you if you have the right messaging it would be everyone would get behind it which i think this study has actually borne out that um that if you if you give clear messaging about why it's needed, what is needed, time bound it, jobs are good, and and people stuck to that. That was really really good. Um, but then after a period of time, then people get fed up, people get bored, um, and so it was always going to be how do you then manage the 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 coming out of the 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 lockdowns and things like that. There was always going to be more of a always going to be more of an issue, and that's where now we see huge partisan divide. 
that you want um, and politics and itself. People are playing politics and using it as a as a political tool, which again um, is all down to human behaviour. It's all about now trying to maximise what it is that they want out of the situation because they now feel um, safer that they can that they can do that. Um, yeah, it's it's just I just find the whole thing now just utterly fascinating. Um, I mean, the other thing that we've that they've pushed a lot on now is not so much um, large behaviour um, demands, but actually just nudging people in the right direction. So actually, when they're um, you know making sure, so when you go into a store now, rather than telling people to have always sanitise before they walk in the store, they make sure they sanitise is right at the front of the store. It's the first thing you see when you go in. So you automatically put your hand out and sanitize because, you know, you've been nudged in that way rather than somebody saying you can't come in unless, unless you've um, sanitized your hands. Really nudging people in the right behaviors um, is still a relatively new um, uh, branch, of, uh, branch of behavior science, which I think has been um, really, true, really truly developed through uh, the, the, this COVID period. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the nudging is fascinating to me as well. Providing making reducing those barriers, making those barriers smaller to these pro-social, pro uh pro-pandemic safe behaviors uh, is is interesting. And the the lower those barriers are, the easier it is for people to do. Let's say like you said, the the I think the um the hand sanitizer example is a good one. Another one is also uh, kind of sort of reminders everywhere that your mask should be above your nose. So it's not only saying that you need to wear a mask, but it's saying how to wear it properly. And I think those those subtle nudges are going to be uh, effective in some cases, maybe not in extreme cases, but I think uh, certainly they will be effective to some. I think one other point for me, uh, and maybe this will be my last point here with this article for me, uh, is is sort of what this has done for research that is typically done in physical environments. And, you know, I think there's sort of the article points out here that there's technical workarounds that a lot of people have been implementing and could actually end up strengthening science. So there's a you, uh, there's a researcher. Uh, Alexander Holcomb. I'm going to mess that up. Anyway, a, a psychologist at the University of Sydney, Australia, who studies virtual or visual perception, and it's a very narrow area of science where people weren't doing online studies before the pandemic because if you have visual perception, you know, there's there's very specific controls that you need in place in order for that to happen, and so because of these social distances distancing practices. These kind of forced him and his team to learn computer programming that was necessary in order to make their experiments work online. And one sort of benefit to being able to do these types of studies online is that you get this uh, massive sample size, as we talked before, you get much bigger sample sizes than you were able to do in a lab. And so sort of forcing, uh, using the pandemic as a forcing function and pandemic requirements as a forcing function to modify your materials in a way that gets access to more people is going to strengthen science in the long run because then you have a larger sample size to generalize to. And uh, it just overall kind of helps with data collection. I don't know. I, I find this one 
really fascinating because this has a lot of parallels to like usability studies in in uh, industry, right? A lot of us do usability studies in industry where we'll go out to a location and actually watch over the shoulder and record a user performing a task, especially if it's an ergonomic task where they're interacting with physical elements. And so uh, to be able to sort of set things up online and get all that information remotely is hugely beneficial. Do you have any experience with with, uh, modifying your in-person stuff for online stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I spent most of the pandemic doing. It was the, I mean, certainly at right at the beginning, there was a whole lot of stuff that we had to do. Um, no, there was no other way. We had to do it physically. There was security implications. There was all sorts of, there was no other way of doing it. We were going to do it. But as soon as the pandemic hit, oh, everything changed. Um, and that really, I think, bought um, a real sense of, right, what is truly important um, here. So there was some stuff that we just couldn't do and we couldn't get around there was no way way we could do it but there was a lot of other stuff that we actually could um and i think really you know going in with the whole message of what this whole article is saying the pandemic has really given us an opportunity to almost step change the way we think it's allowed us to to sit there and say right we can do things in a different way um you know everything from working um as well as conducting studies you know your day-to-day tasks can now be done, um, you can make value choices between, well, do I need to be in person to do something or can I do it remotely and and crack on? And I think we this allows us now to value that face-to-face interaction. So I've been, you know, we, we back in Wales, um, here in the UK, we, we're back into almost a lockdown where we have to work from home unless we really have to be in the office. And it made us think, right, well, what is it that we value about being together as a team um, and being a, you know, running a, a an in a company that pride, prides itself on innovation, innovative thinking, you know, we do a lot of whiteboarding, and and you sort of say, well, actually, yes, we can do a certain amount of whiteboarding through you know Teams, Zoom, and whatever the platform it is that you want to use, but is that of the same value as an in-person whiteboarding experience? And we come to the conclusion of actually, it's it's not a bad second, but it's still a second place. And so we've sort of put in into our justification, into our um, COVID risk assessment, that if you need to be able to, if we need to do run an innovation workshop, that we that, that needs to be in, you know, that needs to be face to face because we now value so much more. We can't take it for granted that face to face interaction. And so I think yeah. this this article is is all over that. I think it's that the fundamental thing of let's just value um, people's interaction. Um, yeah, just going to be so high high on the list of what we do now going forward. Yeah, that face-to-face interaction. We talked a lot about that in our episode on innovation and working remotely. And that's a good conversation if you want to listen to that. Uh, did you have any other points on this article you want to make before we head out? No, I think it's just, I just think it's a fantastic article. I really like it. it. Is, yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic article. Please go read it if you can. A uh, huge thank you to our patrons and everyone on Twitter who <laughs> selected the topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at The Scientific American for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles and our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us in our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these topics. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. 
The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. And we especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff, patron Michelle Tripp. Uh, there's something you may not know about our patrons. We do have a tier for sponsorship. We really do like to keep this show ad-free. Um, and so this is a one opportunity, like only one person, entity, company can do this. Uh, and, and we will be selective about who can do this. But basically... Uh, in this tier of sponsorship for the show, uh, instead of that Patreon commercial that you just heard, it will be whatever they, they want us to read. They'll get 150 words, uh, approximately 60 seconds of our time for us to read uh, their pitch on uh, whatever it is for a show sponsor. Now, this is look like we're not going to just pick anyone. And we, we do want to be selective about these show sponsors. We want to make sure it's relevant to you all. It's just something that I'm not sure how many people know about first off, but like this could be a human factors company looking for uh, human factors or UX practitioners that um, they need to hire for work. And so that might be a good way to get that out to uh, an audience that's very targeted at human factors people. And if you're not looking for a job, great. You don't have to listen to it. Just skip through it. If you are listening to a job, then it could benefit you. This could also be for a product like for usability research or user testing or anything like that, that might actually benefit you that you didn't know about. We don't have any sponsors right now. Like I said, we do like to keep the show ad free. If we did have a sponsor, it would open us up to do a lot more fun things. This could be, I don't know, like actually going to conferences physically uh, could pay for things like our, our flight tickets and our hotel reservations and all that stuff. Um, and so, I don't know. Just I, I think it's something that I struggle with in terms of we want to keep the show ad free. And it's something that I've been very passionate about. But it is also something that I want everyone to be aware of that we're going to be very selective about this. And it's not just going to be uh, trash anyway. So so that's what I'm saying. Um, the, the treasurer says I can't push Patreon every week. I just push Patreon with the show sponsor. Maybe that's a different way. They said, I, yeah, they said I can't uh, do. What is it? I can't put all my eggs in one basket with uh, with promoting Patreon every week. But this is a tier that we don't normally promote. So I'm OK with it. Treasurer. Listen to that. All right. <laughs> so huge thank you to all of our patrons. You guys really keep the show running. Uh, really, we couldn't do this without you. So thank you all so much for your continued support and everyone listening just in general. Uh, we wouldn't do this if no one listened. So thank you for listening right now. Uh, I think we just get into the next part of the show. And that is... It came from... It came from... That's right. It's Nick messing up the buttons. It is. It came from... This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics 
the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, wherever you're at, just give us a like to help other people find this content so it might be able to help them too. We have three up tonight, and they're all from Reddit. Looks like they're all from the user experience subreddit, which is great. Let's talk about this first one here. This is by throwawayperson222. They clearly don't want to be mentioned on the show, and that's fine. Uh, or mentioned on Reddit. Anyway, so this is a full-time job contract, part-time job for 10 hours a week. Okay, they go on to write, uh, I have a full-time product design job at a tech company, and my friend who I worked with previously reached out to me about a possible contract side gig at her company, a design agency mostly designing marketing materials, or marketing collaterals, for 10 hours a week. I was a graphic designer first prior to being a product designer, Told her I'd only be able to work weekends, and she's fine with it. She knows how I work and knows I'm dependable. Just curious if this would be a conflict of interest to my full-time employer. Barry, let's talk about this, because have you ever taken a full-time job with a part-time gig, and has it been successful? Or do you know Uh, anybody? I know people who've definitely done it, and I've sort of done it myself, because you know, when you take on, um, not necessarily the, the full-time job, but you've taken on a, a large contract and then another contract on the side um, that's definitely bust your hours and it means that you're working long hours. And um, this January might be just a really good example of that because, you know, the midnight oil is being burned. Um, it's interesting that the question here that, that, that they pose actually is around would it cause a conflict of interest to the full-time employer? Now, the answer to that is clearly, well, it depends. Uh, depends on the um, on if it's in the same um, if it's in the same domain, if it's in the same marketing space. Um, and really, the the best person to ask actually is your full time employer, because sometimes, depending on on how on how they're written, you might have clauses in your contract that says you can't do it. So, from a purely legal perspective, check your contract first. Um, your your full time contract because there's a number of things that could catch you out. Um, not least of all being that you might be able to do that side gig, um, but any um, monies or you know or if you anything else that you um, earn from that, the company might be able to um, um, get back from you, um, which is an unpleasant way to find it. Um, I do know somebody who lost a patent that way. Um, so I would say, you know, from the um, professional side of things, from the company side of things, check your contract, have a chat. Um, it's better in most cases to be open and upfront, depending on that relationship you have with the employer. But there is another side of this that I would um, really push, that if you're working 37 hours a week or 40 hours a week, whatever your contract is, and then you're doing another 10 hours a week for something else, there are only so many hours in the day, literally. And you the, the road to burnout is right there. So just be very careful with your own, um, literally with your own mental health and about how um, how much effort and time you're putting into it and um, think about whether you should be doing quite so many hours in what you're doing. Um, he says from very personal experience. Yeah. <laughs> hands up who hasn't been in that situation. <laughs> Everyone yeah. keeps up hands down. But um, what about you, Nick? What do you think? Yeah, I think it, Depends. Hit the button. Because I, I think, look, like this is full transparency. I do this. Uh, this is something that I do, something that I my employer knows about. Um, I, I work part time and I, I set very clear boundaries, right? Like my full time job is my priority and the other employer knows this. <laughs> and uh, it's it's one of those things where 
yes, you need to read your clauses, read, read, read the job offer, read all the new hire material, check with HR, like check with HR and make sure that they know what's going on and that you're fully transparent. Don't try to play it off on the side. I think there was an article uh, in the middle of last year that was talking about two people who like worked at the same two companies and they just kind of uh, hired each other and just said they were doing all the work and they, they were full-time at both places. And so, but they would only do work at one of the places and the other would cover the other work. It was so, it was, it was an interesting article and uh, they were basically getting by with double salaries. Don't do that. That's, that's my word of advice. Don't do that. I think um, it's to me, there's only, like you said, there's so, so many hours in the day. And so something will need to take a hit, whether that's one of your hobbies that you do in your free time, uh, just be prepared for that, you know, and, and do communicate with both parties, right? The, both the part-time and the full-time about um, your commitment. And, and I think the biggest part of this is to build in flexibility with that part-time and say, look, like, I don't know if I'll be able to commit to 10 hours a week. I can commit to five with maybe a flex to 10. And I think giving a range will give you the opportunity to not get burned out, right? One extra hour a day spent on this thing might not burn you out. It may burn you out. You don't know. And so just kind of, you know what's best for you. Just do it. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next one here. <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, we'll talk about mental health later. But um, anyway, uh, how do you write interview questions for two different user groups of one product? This is by Jalindrail on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, right now I am doing Google UX certificate uh, and I am preparing for the first user interviews. The product I'm doing research for is an app remote psychotherapy uh, okay. And the problem I have right now is that there are two user groups with different pain points and needs. How would I write interview questions for that product since everybody should be asked the same questions? Can I pull this off? Do I need to narrow down the project scope and have it for one user group only, like an app just for patients? Uh, thank you in advance for your feedback. So how, <laughs> Barry, how do you, how do you handle asking two different user groups, two different sets of questions. Exactly like that and not the way that they're suggesting it. Um, it's interesting where they say that the, the I mean, the, the biggest constraint is that everybody should be asked the same questions. Why? Um, they absolutely shouldn't. If you've got two different user groups that you're coming from, from two different perspectives, then that is two different questionnaires right there because you're setting yourself artificial boundaries um, and the, the insights that you get are just going to suffer for it. Um, so fundamentally, yes, you either need to narrow down the scope and just look at one of the um, user groups. Um, and if, that, you know, if, if that's part of what you're doing as part of your, of your certificate, so look at the um, just the patient's bit or uh, the practitioner's piece. Um, and 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 just do one bit and do that well um if this if it was for a um an actual um an actual product and you're doing this for as part of your day job i'd be saying it's two questionnaires you're looking at two facilitated groups um and and pushing it that way you can't you can't do it all you one questionnaire will just not do it all that was simple have i got it yeah. wrong Nick? what do you think i no i agree and i'm not gonna waste my time talking about this because i think you're right Two different questionnaires. That's it. That's that's the answer. Uh, tailor tailor your products for 
the people that you're talking to, the user group that you're talking to, and look at it one user group at a time. Or if you do multiple user groups, build that in. Uh, that's You need to be able to collect feedback from them. There's no one size fits all. And it is interesting, actually, that this is not the first question we've had around a um, a study based query, and it's almost like um, that a lot of and I might be doing a lot of courses a disservice, but we don't seem to push tailoring um, as much as I think we need to. It's almost one of the first question, one of the first skills that a yeah. an HR practitioner needs is how to really you know take the step back and look at the question. Um, and tailor, you know, make sure that you're you've got the scope to tailor your answer um, to the output, rather than trying to just answer the question straight away. Yeah, anyway, so I, that, that was an aside. No, that's that's the skill set. You need to be able to do that. That's that's the skill set. Uh, all right, I'm going to get into this last question here. This is what's up with the anti-academic sentiment in user experience lately. This is by Luxury UX again on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, I just wanted to get a temperature check on something I've been noticing lately on social media and many self-published UX articles. I'm seeing a lot of UX professionals bashing the idea of people going down the route of college or university to get into user experience, user experience research. I'm seeing more and more people working in industry touting the degrees don't matter rhetoric. And to be honest, while there is some validity... Uh, for things like skyrocketing tuition or admission scandals. I'm finding this type of advice becoming more and more common and troubling. Personally, I know many folks that took a more formal route via academia to build a solid foundation of knowledge and are great at what they do and credit higher education for building that foundation. I've been seeing many UX gurus on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook giving advice to folks not to, quote, waste time and money on university to launch a UX and just take a short online course or boot camp. Why, as an industry, are people steering folks away from pursuing knowledge in an academic setting as well as openly trashing folks who do pursue higher education? And to be candid, I'm finding this sentiment alarming. I don't know any other industry that openly trashes people for pursuing higher education as much as UX or design roles. What is the motivation behind this? Now, Barry, that 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 is a lot to unpack, and I want to ask you your opinion on this because you are not uh, academically trained, right? You are self-taught, yeah. And so, I'm sure you have some very uh, uh, interesting thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the so um, if you take human factors and user experiences, largely the same thing. Then, um, which I'm sure they've caused an argument already. Um, we see we see a lot of this all the time, um, and I think largely it's just down to UX um, still being a comparatively new discipline. So it's still it's it's trendy, it's it's new. Um, you've got a lot of self-made um, experts in the field or self-styled experts in the field giving their opinion, and it's quite easy to give your opinion um, to be a big personality in a small in 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 a in a small pond. Um, so. Yeah, they, it, it kind of works. The problem, and many people will be successful for a period of time in doing that. Um, but we, but we as a dis discipline, will only actually become better and stronger by sharing knowledge, uh, by sharing the way we do things, sharing the best practice, sharing um, between ourselves just how we, you know what has worked, what hasn't, and the place we do that is through academia. Um, so when you sort of get to that point of um, 
um, you know, you've learned a new technique, that's great. It might work for you, but it's actually academia that will take take that rigorously test it and put it into a into a into a form that um, that has a, some scientific backing that can say yes. Other people should go and use it like this. Might not be exactly the way that you did it because it'll have brought in other things as well. I have seen. I, I did gave a presentation and I, I sort of do a futures um, presentation every now and again at a couple of universities and. I sort of, you know, quite happily point out that uh, my background, my degree is actually in command and control engineering. Um, it's not in, in in human factors. And so somebody turned around and said, oh, do you not think, um, you know, because I do research, um, do you think your your type of research is better than um, academic research? Why do we bother with academic research? And you kind of have to get into the fact that, yes, I do research and we do what I loosely call quick and dirty research, but that can't exist on its own. It can't exist in a vacuum. It sits on the, I basically stand on the shoulders of giants that I have to take academic research. And the part of the skill in what we do is take some of that and make it in, uh, practical and applicable. Um, so I think I've always believed that um, academia and industry have to have a, um, a strong relationship. It can be an uncomfortable relationship um, because there is personalities in both fields. There is people trying to, you know, ego comes into both fields very strongly. Um, I just think that, uh, I don't think UX and, um, uh, academia, are the first people to have this problem. Um, I think it happens in most domains. It's just the UX is the, um, is, is the, is the, the, the new boy in the class. Um, yeah. uh, very much. And so it's, it's the latest, um, it's the latest topic. Um, but it happens. Yeah. So, so for me, I, I am trained in academia, right? That's, that's my background. Uh, I, from that background, in many cases, and I think, uh, I hate the both sides argument in politics, but I I think it's actually valid here. I think there's some things going on on both sides of this spectrum of UX and uh, or, or industry and uh, academia that plays a role here. I think academics tend to look down on those uh, in, in some cases that have risen up from doing uh, work as experience in UX or human factors and said, well, you don't have the same training I had. I went to school to do it, and therefore you are lesser than me. And I think this whole you don't need degrees is a kind of pushback to that gatekeepy attitude. And I think one thing that I'm really passionate about is sort of breaking down those barriers. Don't make it gatekeeping. Make things available to everyone um, because industry is using, like you said, there is this there's this relationship between industry and academia where academia tests it and, and industry uses it. And so they need to be able to trust that research. And it's like, you know, if you have people coming from academia into industry, then they inherently trust that because they've been through those rigors. They know what it's like. I do want to comment on one one little line here. There's a line that says, I've been seeing many UX gurus on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook giving advice to folks not to waste time and money on university to launch a UX uh, and just take a short online course or boot camp. You want to know why that is? They want you to take their short UX online course or boot camp and waste your time and money on that uh, instead of academia. academia. And um, it will be very short and focused and you'll learn a lot. But again, it's it's how you value your time and how you value any pieces of paper that go in hand with, you know, what you learn. 
So I don't know. I think there's a larger uh, disconnect on on uh, from from both industry and academia that needs to be bridged. And that's something that I in the Human Factors Cast Lab, like we I'm, I'm focused on that because it's we need to communicate the science out to industry. And that's something that I'm really passionate about as somebody who works in industry. So anyway, uh, let's just get into this last part of the show. It's one more thing. It needs no introduction. So let's go ahead and get into it. Barry, what is your one more thing this week? Well, in many ways, it's a bit um, one of them things that uh, we in Wales are back into lockdown. Um, so that would kind of brought us into New Year with a bump that we're back to working from home. And it was it's sort of been one of these ones now that you sort of really hit. Um I really, I really want to be working in the office. Um, through the first lockdown, it was very much of the oh yes, it's a, it's it's a it's a new experience. We you know you get that almost that that thrill of a change of, of all that sort of stuff. Whereas now it's, I think we are very much into that. I just want to get over this and get back to normal, whatever normal is going to look like. But um, one of the things that that's happened today, which I, I thought was um, really quite cool, is as well as as I mentioned earlier, my background is actually um, in command and control engineering, and I get involved in some engineering communities. So the Institute of Engineering Technology, I've done the thing that um, that I swear I wouldn't do, which is take on too many things. And I've joined another committee. So I've joined a local committee around the engineering team to try and promote um, engineering. Um, so in, encouraging people to become um, chartered engineers and, and all that sort of stuff. So that was where I was um, this evening, just before we, we joined here, we had a, another hour long or two hours long meeting. Um, around how to promote uh, good engineering and good engineering practice within our within our local communities. So, just with that that bit of time that I thought I was going to have free, I've now I've now managed to fill it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I go back to being frantic all the time. What about you, Nick? Yay. What's your one more thing? Yay for being frantic. Uh, this is going to take a little bit of a serious note here. Um, I so look like if you if you longtime listener to the show, I'm usually pretty chipper on the show, and I tend to, I guess put forward a public facing persona that's it's not a persona it's it's who i am it's just turned on to an additional level i guess um over the over the holiday break i um i I don't even know how to talk about this this is this is so hard so over the holiday break i kind of read some experiences online that kind of mirrored my own i was struggling with getting the motivation to even do basic household chores like cleaning the the dishes or cleaning the kitchen, uh, sweeping, or even just getting off the couch. It was, it's, um, it it was a lot. And so, uh, I also found myself in patterns of, of sort of these behaviors where I knew I was doing something wrong and I couldn't necessarily correct it and found myself either hyper fixating on something that I, I wouldn't be able to put down until it was complete. And, um, it often detracted from other higher priority things around the house. And, uh, I, you know, it was, (laughs) again, this is really hard to talk about, but this was, um, causing problems in, in my own interpersonal relationships with friends and family. And, um, so I, I seeing a psychiatrist and, uh, I clearly have depression and suspected ADHD. And, you know, this is, it's a new year. And I encourage you if you're listening to this and, um, maybe find yourself with similar experiences, uh, maybe read up on a little bit. And I'm more than happy to talk to anybody who might be going through something like I, I get it. Like, please reach out to me on, on discord or Slack. Like I, I am happy to talk about my experiences and what they were like for me and how they manifested. 
Um, but I, I am now on medication and, you know, I'm one and a half weeks in, so we'll see how it impacts me in the long term. But the first week has been pretty great. You know, I, <laughs> the first day I was on pills, I went and cleaned the whole kitchen like spotless. Uh, and it was amazing. Um, but anyway, we'll, I'll, I'll keep you all up to date with that. It's just a new year. And I encourage you all to check in on your mental health or friends that, you know, you may have not heard from in a minute because, um, yeah, I, I, you, you might just not know until, I don't know. It's, that's my one more thing. And that's going to be it for today, everyone. <laughs> Well, well, on that note. Before you do that, just really well done for being able to address it and and talk about it. We don't talk about mental health enough, and it's stigmatized, and it takes people to have the courage that you've just shown just there to be able to show other people that we can talk about this like any other injury because it, it is. It your your brain is um it's another part of the body. It's another muscle. It it um, needs tender love and care, and that's what you're showing it. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks. Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> yeah, seriously, if anyone, if anyone needs to reach out, please do. Uh, I, I know I might be just somebody that you listen to in your ear holes on a weekly basis, but please do. I really just, I'm happy to talk. Uh, anyway, that is going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and uh, enjoy hearing about what some of the pan what pandemic might be doing to some of our other behaviors we invite you to check out episode 224 where we look at how remote working might foster innovation we brought that up a little earlier comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for, for more in-depth discussion you can always join us on our slack or discord communities and you can always visit our official website sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest in human factors news if you like it to hear want to support the show there's a couple things you can do maybe it's a five-star review tell your friends about us you can always support us on Patreon as well. It's always links to all of our socials and our website are going to be in the description of this episode. And I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to find out more about that engineering stuff? That engineering stuff can be found on Twitter at Baz underscore K or listen to my Human Factors podcast, 1202 The Human Factors podcast, 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming sometimes on Twitch when I do office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. There's that mental health thing. Don't do too much that you can't handle. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. 